and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. I stand with J.K. Rowling. Those were the words tweeted by author Gillian Phillip in June 2020, and I bet you can guess what happened next. We're delighted to be joined today by Gillian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Ben and Tom. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you, Gillian. And uh, I thought we'd just start by, um, if you can possibly bear to describe it, uh, it's been, you know, I'm sure you've done this a hundred times, but could you give us a potted summary of what happened after that tweet uh, or rather right. that, ha- that addition to your Twitter handle back in 2020? Right. I'll try to make it potted. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I'd been, I'd been on Twitter since about 2010, I think. Um, always extremely opinionated. I mean, terribly opinionated. Um uh, tweeted a lot about politics, lots of different issues. Um, never ever had had a problem. Never been challenged by a publisher or agent. Never been told to shut up or anything. So perhaps I'd been lulled into a false sense of security. Um, but um, anyways, from about 2017, I started tweeting about the transgender issue, the trans transgender ideology, women's sex based rights, um, and for a while it kind of ticked along all right um and then June 2020 um I'd seen the way first of all Rachel Rooney another author had been treated by um not actually a Twitter mob but a little clique of other children's authors and I'd been kind of horrified by that um and then the JK Rowling thing came along where she was absolutely monster I mean the treatment she got on Twitter was absolutely horrific just for a couple of tweets about women's sex-based rights fully in support of trans rights as well um but you know she supported sex-based rights and i tweeted that i stood with jk rowling um now it was quiet for a couple of weeks and then one morning 20th 26th of june i woke up uh to a hostile tweet or two and i blocked and moved on as you do as, as, as the right thing to do um, but it didn't stop. Um, this was obviously kind of coordinated. <clears throat> and for the next 24 hours, um, I basically had an avalanche of really abusive tweets, um, uh, sort of rape threats, death threats, um, hoping horrid things would happen to me, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I made a couple of snippy tweets back, wasn't wasn't abusive back, but I was beginning to like get really... I didn't know what to do. I, I, I was like, blocked, I blocked, but it made no difference. They just kept coming. Um, 24 hours later, well, I got to sleep at about five in the morning on the 27th. Um, and by nine in the morning, my agent was calling me um, saying, you know, basically this was a problem. Um, and working partners who were my direct employers, uh, they, um, oh, they had a problem with it. Um, but they had to talk to HarperCollins in New York, who were the publishers of the books Working Partners produced. Um, and by nine o'clock in the morning, New York time, which was 2 p.m. our time, I was fired on the spot wow. <clears throat> wow. for being piled on, not for anything I'd done. <laughs> so that, that all happened in a week, two weeks? But I suppose there was a two-week lull and then when it There was a two-week lull, exactly. And then really it, it, it was 24 hours, literally 24 hours. Um, so, um, yeah, wow. that's, that's basically what happened. Um, mm. the, uh, yeah, I was, I was a really successful writer for working partners in HarperCollins. Um, 
I'd produced a lot of books for them under their direction. Um, they'd been really pleased with my work. Uh, they'd been really pleased. They sent me out to the States a couple of times a year to promote the books as well. They were really happy with that. They got rave reviews, um, but none of it mattered. Um, what mattered was the opinions of kind of trolls on the internet. You know, after hearing stories like that so many times and after the FSU has helped upwards of 2,000 people, I'm starting to think cancel culture isn't actually a right-wing myth that's been invented by GB News and The Telegraph. It almost seems like cancel culture is real. It almost seems like it is something that, that is wrecking people's lives. Yeah, seems that way, doesn't it? it it's uh, This thing, cancel culture isn't real. Oh, it's just um, it's consequence culture, they like to see. Um, well, consequence... For what? Uh, for what? For standing up for women's rights? Um, it's 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 an it's an insane kind of mentality. Um, it's entirely a mob mentality. It's 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 madness of crowds. It's whipped up like witch hunts. Um, but the the kind of ultimate insult is that they then turn around and say, "Well, cancel culture isn't real. This didn't happen." Um, basically, she was asking for it. Uh, which, you know, we know what other kind of context that comes up in. And it probably doesn't make it feel any better, Gillian, but, you know, in some ways for revealing the mob and revealing, you know, the pitchfork experience, it's the gender-critical feminists or just the sex, people who believe in, in sex as a biological reality who have been so important in this, but, of course, they've suffered a long the way um because of it but it's it's the in a way that's a hugely positive thing that it's happened to people who have been feminists who are on the left to to make it clear that it is a real thing i don't know what you feel about that it is a real thing and i mean it has i mean they have made the mistake the mob of going for some really strong women yeah. i mean you know Whose bright idea is it to attack Julie Bindle, for example? I mean, you know, um, Helen Joyce, tremendous women who are just not going to take this lying down. But the the thing about the whole cancel culture mob thing is that it is not really, in the end, aimed at me or Helen Joyce or Julie Bindle or any, it's aimed at the people who are watching. Because an awful lot of women are still terrified. Um, you know, I mean, they, 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 will, they will say, oh, you haven't been silenced. You know, you're still in a podcast with the Free Speech Union. You know, you've been, you've been in, the, in the Daily Mail. The Telegraph covered you. How, how have you been silenced? Well, apart from the fact of losing my job um, and losing my income, um, the, the cancellation thing is a warning to others. It's saying you too will lose your job if you dare to speak out about this. Um, and an awful lot of women are still scared. Um, many still feel they have to be anonymous on Twitter because they know, they know they'll lose their jobs. They know the activists will come for them. Um, and, you know, they simply can't afford to have that happen. Well, I, I think I mentioned this a, a, a couple of weeks ago, actually, Gillian, uh, on one of our podcasts. We had a Sharon Davies event uh, probably three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And we've got Sharon Davies coming to speak with us uh, next week. Fantastic. It's going to be amazing. She's amazing. One of my heroes, especially as a swimmer. I, 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 oh, you know, I love her. She's fantastic. Um, but I was helping to welcome people along to that event and mainly gender-critical feminists um, coming along to hear her. 
uh, and a couple of other people we had uh, uh, who worked in, in academia. The fear was palpable in the room. We happened to be filming the event, and the first question was, where's the camera? Where can I sit? Um, who's going to see it? Who's... And 50% of people had, were not worried because they'd come out, if you will, completely. But, mm. you know, it was, it was, for me, it was a real eye-opener that this is terrifying for people. Yeah. Um, and I've said it, it before, is. but I keep coming back to it because it was really striking. It, it is really striking. And it's not just, it's not just the fear of career cancellation or job loss. It's, I mean, I was in Aberdeen on last Sunday at an event, 23rd of July in 2023. And a, a group of women got together. We, we, we do it regularly. We talk, we, we try to encourage other women to speak, speak about their experiences. And there's always a counter-protest. And at this counter-protest, um, before the women's meeting had even started, in public, in a public park, um, one of the counter-protesters um, had dashed across, um, grabbed a woman's banner, um, a friend of mine. Um, she went after him to try and get it back, and he punched her hard twice in the face. So it ain't just... Um, it's not just a kind of career threat, it's physical threat. And women, that's another thing that's supposed to scare other women. Don't come to these meetings because we will punch your lights out. Um, and, it, and it's a menacing thing. And, you know, it, it's on video. There were many, many witnesses and um, the police have given them a warning. I think you're, what you're saying resonates entirely with our experience of the chilling effect. And we have so many emails from people who say, you know, some variation of this new policy is coming into effect in my workplace and I'm really concerned about its effect on women's rights and you know, it might be in a hospital, it might be in a government department or whatever. Um, we get so many pieces of correspondence like that, quite literally every week, um, and people just afraid of speaking up internally in case they lose their, their job. And you faced a social media mob, which is horrendous and stressful enough on its own and obviously it's had you know, really terrible consequences for your career. Um, but as you say women are facing actual, real, physical mobs. Um, as we've seen increasingly, I think the, the, um, the movement to silence gender-critical women seems to, be, seems to be becoming increasingly violent, as it seems to be losing legal battles. Um, it seems to be resorting to street thuggery. Yes, and, and uh, yes, and I mean, I think it is a sign of their desperation because we, the gender-critical argument is gaining ground all the time, and we know we're going to win the argument because we have to it's it's simply there's no other option we have to win this battle um you know basically for the sake of our daughters and it's not just um not just a matter of women's rights it's a matter of gay 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 rights um it's a matter of lesbians rights they are not allowed spaces of their own without inviting in members of the opposite sex um but the the thuggery is becoming real um, as we are beginning to win um, because they are becoming desperate and when they get desperate, they're going to lash out. When you took to Twitter, um, in the language of, of tabloid journalists, did you have any sense at all that you were going to become embroiled in this battle? I mean, presumably not in the... You had no sense of what the consequences um, were going to turn out to be. Um, but, but did you think that, you know, three years later, you'd be absolutely at the centre of this fight uh i didn't no i didn't i knew to sort of take take those kind of two 
separate kind of t- separate things. I I knew I was wading into something controversial, but it wasn't it wasn't something I hadn't done before. Um, as I say, I'd been um, crazy opinionated on Twitter before about loads of things um, about uh, um, Scottish independence, the the um, anti-Semitism, things like that. Things things all things that were quite kind of you know they were quite high. Um, high stress, high high control, high, high controversy. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was used to I was used to getting attacked on Twitter. I was used to you know, um, and all this stuff. But um, the willingness of my employers to instantly capitulate to it was a surprise. Um, I thought that at least they might talk to me about what had happened, talk me through it. Um, perhaps um, about two years earlier, said to me, we really don't want you talking about this stuff on Twitter. Um, uh, nothing, nothing. They, they never said a word. And they knew perfectly well what I was tweeting about because um, one of the editors wants a perfectly polite, totally public exchange of views about it on public Twitter. So they knew perfectly well. So... Um, it was a little surprising for them to instantly capitulate to a mob that was based a bunch of anonymous trolls, pervs, furries, overgrown teenagers. I don't believe there was a child among them, although they were children's books. Not going by the language, anyway. Um, instantly say, right, well, we don't believe the author we've been working with for an excess of 10 years. We believe these anonymous people on Twitter who are abusing her. That was quite a surprise. Um, the um, as for what happened afterwards, I mean, in the in the aftermath of it, I was I was I was pretty much in shock. It was traumatizing. Um, you know, you try and put on a brave face at the time, but it is actually incredibly traumatizing to have all this um, just coming at you, at kind of hour after hour, tweet after tweet. Um, you know, um, and what struck me was my husband had died five weeks earlier, um, and um, what they wanted, it kind of kept coming back to me, was for my children to lose their mother right after losing their father, because they, they were telling me to kill myself, they were hoping something terrible happened to me, <clears throat> and so that was that was pretty traumatic. Um, by the way, the funny thing was that my employers sent me flowers when my husband died. Um, I've always thought they were the most insincere flowers in history now. Anyway, uh, so, but after, once the kind of initial shock wears off, I think, I mean, I just became angry, kind of coldly angry. And I just thought, they're not going to get away with this. No, they want to silence me. Why am I going to give them what they want when they've already got so much of what they want? They've lost me my job. Um, um, they've lost me my agent, who also dumped me. Um, and I just thought, why am I going to give them any more of what they want? So that's when I decided to get loud. I mean, really loud. <laughs> so, um, yeah, if they thought I was opinionated before. Oh. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, I just, I just, and, and nothing has made me more determined um, to keep talking about it than the memory of them trying to silence me. 
basically. And I think that is true of a lot of women this has happened to. Um, and because, you know, it's by no, I mean, they did it to Maya Forstater. Uh, that may have been the most self-sabotaging move of activists ever. And <laughs> yeah. because, because how Maya Forstater established our rights, you know, in law. <laughs> you know, take that, guys. <laughs> and so we, we should say at this point, so you, you came to the Free Speech Union and um, you're a member of ours and you are now going through uh, bringing an employment tribunal claim. And we hear this phrase all the time that the process is the punishment. In an ideal world, you would not be going through an employment tribunal process. It's hugely stressful. It takes a long time. I don't need to tell you these things. Um, but there is a crowdfunder that you can donate to on crowd justice if you would like to help. Because as you've been saying, Jane, it's not just about your case. It's about the broader principle um, and and protecting the rights of of all of us who, who want to express our views about about this issue and and the increasingly deranged turn it seems to be taking. Um, so please do don't donate on crowd justice, and we'll include the link uh, with the episode. Thank thank you so much, but yeah, thank you for mentioning that because yeah, and I mean I've had a lot of help already to take take um, the case to the initial tribunal, um, um, and now I'm having to do it again to prove that I was a basically a worker because by the end of my career I was working exclusively for working partners. I I, I didn't have time because of the tight deadlines and the demands. I didn't have time to do any of my own writing. Um, so I now have to prove that I was a worker, not a so-called independent contractor, which is, you know, what what employers use to try and get out of giving workers their due rights. But I mean, as as for the free speech union, uh, I don't. And someone said this to me on Sunday at the same event. Um, I don't know what we would have done had it not been for the free speech union. Um, because the Free Speech Union has been there for so many people who've experienced this kind of thing, and not only in connection with this issue. Um, I mean, the, the day after what happened to me, um, it fleetingly occurred to me to approach the Society of Authors, but it just as fleetingly went out the other side because um, the Society of Authors are completely captured um, by this lobby I saw how they treated Rachel Rooney, um, the the author who was cancelled before me, um, and I, I simply I knew that it would be humiliating, hurtful, and useless to approach the Society of Authors. Um, so I turned to the Free Speech Union, and it seemed like the natural thing to do. I, they instantly wanted to help. Um, they instantly had practical suggestions. Um, it, it was it was amazing to have that to fall back on, and just thank God for the free speech union. Well, we're, we're glad to help people in, in in yourself and people in situations like it. And unfortunately, over the last three years, we've built up a tremendous amount of experience in these these types of cases. Um, yeah. I wish the free speech union didn't have to exist but i mean if, if if our critics could see my email inbox every monday morning and and the appeals from people asking for our help in really difficult stressful situations exactly like the one you've just described um yeah it's, it's astonishing the scale of it i think is is something that that's not always appreciated because of course your case is in the public domain and um and various other cases in the public domain right now but the vast majority of our casework is never in in the press it's it's completely beneath the surface 
I can I can imagine because I mean these things are going on in companies at every level, um, in, in workplaces at every level, um, and it's it's so insidious. And I, I'm not even sure how we got how we got, how how free speech suddenly became kind of painted as this kind of extreme right wing position to take when it's basically the foundation of liberal democracy. I do not know. I mean, how did that happen? It's it's it's. It's such insanity, and I, I do sometimes look back and wonder how we got here. I, I the, the one the, the moment I remember is um, the Salman Rushdie affair when it all first kicked off, before yeah. the latest horrendous thing that happened to him. Um, and I remember Shirley Williams going on Question Time and saying, "Well, he shouldn't have been sort of so mean, you know." And and I I remember watching it at the time because I am that old, and um, and I remember just staring at the television thinking. What, what did she just say? What? What? And, yeah. and yet there were other people doing it at the same time. There were other people saying the same thing. People and, clapping. I've, I've seen, I've seen the episode on YouTube. I know exactly what you're right. talking about. Thank goodness yeah. for Christopher yeah. Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens just just absolutely tore a strip over. And, you know, I, was, yeah. I, I mean, I remember I was kind of applauding him. <laughs> but even at the In time... In my sitting room, whenever it was, way back when. <laughs> the Archbishop oh. of Canterbury and Prince Charles, if you go back at the time, even then the establishment were saying, oh, well, we're not sure Salman Rushdie should have done that. Right, right. <laughs> so, so when I think, how did we get here? I sort of look back at occasions like that and think, yeah, okay, it was insidious, but it was happening. Yeah. <laughs> Your point about self sabotage, I think, is very interesting. That you know, in in some ways, your employer uh, went out, went after you, and that was clearly going to be a self sabotage because you weren't going to shut up about it. And I think we've currently on the news cycle, we've got the Nigel Farage Coots situation going on, and again, it would seem look. The and of course we had Kathleen Stock with Sussex University. They've picked on people who you think, why did you do that? That was never going to go well. That was yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, I, the, um, yes, picking on Kathleen Stock, who has, who then resigned from her job and is now free to say exactly what she thinks and has a bigger platform. And, and that's why they say, oh, we haven't been canceled. There's no such thing as cancel culture. But she lost her job. She lost her job because they drove her to such a place where she simply couldn't bear to stay there anymore. And her story was absolutely horrific. And they think women are gonna shut up about that. I mean, they do this to women and expect them to stay quiet. It's, it's, it's worth stupid strategy. Just, just on this point um, about you know this argument that we we've not been cancelled because you're in the Daily Mail and you, you're you know blah 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 blah. Um, for every Kathleen Stock or uh, Maya Forstater or indeed Gillian Phillip, um, there are dozens of people who go through one of these processes and never recover from it. Um, people, you know, really at the, the the lowest end of society, very poor people, yep. Um, yep. ordinary working class people who've, who've just got no means of fighting back against this, um, and who never are able to get things back on track. Um, I think there was a teacher, a head teacher in Canada um, who committed suicide last week after one of, one of these houndings. Um, so it's, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right that it's so self-sabotaging by the activists to have pursued some of the people they have because it has completely backfired. But of course, for many people, they're, they're just not able to get over it. Yeah, exactly. And it can, it can destroy people 
Absolutely, it can destroy people. And um, especially people who don't have the opportunity um, to kind of speak out and have a platform. Apart from anything else, there's now so many of us. Yeah. Everybody, it, it, it would be like impossible for everyone to have a platform because there are so many people being cancelled, driven out of their jobs, punished within their employment. Um, and yeah, and that is why the silencing effect is so pernicious because, you know, people are scared. As I said before, that is why so many people on Twitter, and I keep saying women, but it's men as well. Men also can't speak out about this. Um, they, they, they literally can't speak out about this or they will lose um, their, their source of living. They lose their, their, their mm. it's, it's the, it's the, it's cruelty and it's, stupid and it's it's wicked what what strikes me julian is that you what happened to you happened in 2020 if if you'd done or if, if you know you've done something and you hadn't really done anything other than put a twitter handle on that was perfectly reasonable but if you did that today of course you've now got uh, the LGB Alliance, you've now got Sex Matters, you've now got Respect My Sex, if you want my ex, you've got Networks. What strikes me is you did it in 2020, none of that existed, and yet you managed to get through it. Um, is it a very different scenario now, do you think? I think it is. It's a, it is a much better scenario now. We do have these organisations, but it, it is still a fight. I mean, women still really don't dare. Um, still, some employers are more afraid of an anonymous Twitter mob than they are of respectable organizations um, like uh, Women's Rights Network, LGB Alliance, um, all of these, all of these organizations you mentioned. Um, so there is still a huge danger. But the other thing I have really noticed since it happened to me in 2020 um, is the huge increase in just Ordinary, ordinary men and women speaking out against this. Yes, many of them have to stay anonymous, but there is now a huge cohort of really, they speak powerfully, they know the arguments, they know the details, and they are on social media, and they are arguing against the, 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 the horrors that are coming from the other side. And that, that, Kind of population has grown immensely um you know i mean i think my following has quadrupled since 2020 um it, it's just there's so many more people even if they have to stay you know anonymous for the sake of work there's so many people and many people are coming out under their own names um so there is that there's much more of a mass of people who simply don't tolerate this anymore um and I, you know, I remember. On, do you know they tried to cancel Onjali Ralph, who's um, a, a children's writer as well, has written some amazing books. Um, she, uh, she she also works relentlessly with uh, women and refugees. She is kind of the best kind of person, the person you would think that the left would be absolutely holding up as a hero. Um, children's writers, much as they did to Rachel Rooney before me, children's writers 
made an attempt to cancel Onjali. Um, and they failed because um, a bunch of other writers, um, who by now all were working together, and a bunch of ordinary people on social media, regular, um, just, just, there was so many more people um, arguing against it, and we just weren't having it. So she is still, she's still, you know, she's still writing, she's still being published, and she's still doing amazing work. She still gets a heck of a lot of abuse. Um, and people say the most awful things about it, but um, she hasn't she hasn't lost her writing career. Thank God, because she is so needed. But I think it just shows how you know, no people are not having it anymore. It does seem. I mean, as we've we've talked about endlessly, this is across every sector of society. But there does seem to be a particular problem in the arts, in the literary world, creative industries. And it seems like fiction is much worse than non-fiction and children's fiction is much worse than adult fiction. Do you have any idea why that's the case? Well, am I, am I right? Um, and if so, do you have any idea why that's the case? You're, you're absolutely right. Um, how it happened, um, I don't know. I think it, it was simply, it was institutional capture as they have, as, as this lobby has done in government departments, as they have done in charities, um, as they have done in institutions and companies, uh, corporations, they did it in publishing and in particular children's publishing. Um, and it was done over several years. It simply crept in and I don't know why children's publishing just seems to have been particularly receptive um, to this because they all want to be kind and they all want, yeah. Um, yeah. And it, you know, they, they all want to, oh, everything's rainbows and bunnies and unicorns. Um, let's not think about the women incarcerated for not paying their TV license who are now incarcerated with men who are sexual offenders and violent rapists and suddenly identify as women. Um, you know, let's not think about the women in women's refuges who are there to get away from male bodies but now have to share those spaces with men who suddenly identify as women. Um, you know, and I tried to have this conversation with a few people and we could not get past the be kind, it's all loveliness and unicorns, um, it's the new gay rights, which it isn't, it's the antithesis of gay rights. Yeah. Um, it, and there's, there, there's, and I think even if, I mean, a lot of writers there's a lot of writers who are afraid to speak out. Let me start with that. It's not the whole of children's publishing and the whole of publishing. There are a lot of writers who simply can't afford to lose their careers. But there are also writers who I think they must know at a deep level something's wrong and they won't speak out. But I think even worse than that are the ones who refuse to think. They won't... I mean, if, if when I... Uh, talk to people about it, they, they wouldn't get past the kindness, fluffiness, unicorns and gay rights thing. They couldn't get past it because they refused to think. Because I I think they know that if they thought about this for more than 10 seconds, they'd have to, the whole thing would come crumbling down. And that and that would be the defence of something unconscionable, um, the physical transitioning of children, even the social transitioning of children, which 
you know, leads to physical transitioning almost inevitably. Um, and they would have to suddenly either defend that or change their minds. And I think they're terrified to do that. They're, they're not terrified to speak out those ones. They're terrified to think. I think I, I've used this phrase before, that it's a kind of malicious naivety, which is governing in our institutions. That um, is a perfect way of putting it. It's more Absolutely. than willful ignorance, isn't it? It's, it's worse than that. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, malicious naivety. That's Yes, that's a really good way of putting it. Because they will not, you know, if they picked at one thread, the whole thing would unravel. So they will not pick at that thread. I've got to the point, Julian, where, where I'm shopping for books for my three-year-old. Um, I mean, first of all, don't go and shop in Oxford, which is my closest city, because it's incredibly woke. It's, it's, it's you know, aside from maybe Brighton, it's absolutely... Have they taken the flags down yet, Ben? <laughs> I don't, I've not been in a month or so. Um, but, you know, you, you look at the display in Daunt Books or Waterstones or whatever, um, and it, 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 this sort of indoctrination, which is what it is, is starting at such a young age. And it's, it's pushed me to the point where basically if a book was written after about 2014, I just don't even look at it for her because I just know what the content is going to be like. And it, and it, and it will be done down as well. It won't just be indoctrination. It, it, will, be, it will be quite noticeably done down. Noticeably dumbed down, exactly. Um, and um, I'm, I'm going to put in a plug at this point because um, if you're looking for something for your three-year-old, yes, um, Rachel Rooney, who I've mentioned a couple of times, um, has written an amazing picture book, um, uh, which is fantastic to read aloud because it's in rhyme and it's called My Body Is Me. And it celebrates all different kinds of bodies, all different kinds of children and tells them they are beautiful just as they are, which... I don't know, five or six years ago, that's what you were supposed to tell children. You're beautiful as you are. You're perfect. You're supposed to be this way and, and love yourself as you are. And think about children's books, which I haven't thought about for a while. Um, they are some of the most important parts of our canon. I think of when I was a kid, I read, read J.R.R. Tolkien. J. R. R. Tolkien. Um, I read a bunch of the other, C.S. Lewis. And at the time when you're reading them, you read them because they're the thing to read. And mm. Stig of the Dump, I remember. Yeah, you know, some of these things that you, 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 you get told to read. And, and they are they switch on your imagination in a way that it's not been switched on before. They, they create a little world for you. Uh, they let you realize that imagination and, and different worlds and different ways of thinking and different uh, lands and, and whatnot and galaxies even... You're allowed yes. to think like that, and that the, there yes. is no end to that. There's the profound effect that then has on you as an adult, being able to tap into that imagination that, that was nurtured at a key time, being able to realise there is this completely different way of looking at the world. Are we creating a, a generation of 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds who've never really experienced that, who've never experienced the joy of a profound children's book that transports right. them and, and they don't come out their room for a week. They won't come down for supper. I'm reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's like you have to take everything literally. Lit everything, everything's literal, mm. you know. Uh, 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 and, and yes, and, and it was about creativity. It was about letting your imagination roam. I mean, Watership Down, for instance, who would ever have thought that a book about rabbits? <laughs> I mean, what... Is you know one of the sort of least exciting animals available, 
and <laughs> quite scratchy. Was, it, it was extraordinary. It was like it was it was. I mean, I I ran around pretending I was bigwig. It didn't mean I thought I was bigwig or wanted to be bigwig. It didn't. But it's, it's I wanted to be. It's the book isn't it, that generates the image? I mean, you can it's do the, the film, you can do the TV series, you can do other forms, but it's the book exactly. that is a very personal experience. Book. Because a book is a book is like watching, it's like, it's, I used to tell kids at presentation, it's like watching a movie in your head. You get to yeah. cast it, you get to, you get to design the setting, um, and you get to, and it makes it hugely real in your own head. You're not watching someone else's interpretation of it, you're watching your own interpretation of it behind your eyes. Um, um, which, you know, it is an amazing experience. And, you know, I, I don't want kids to be put off reading, but I think the children's publishing industry is letting them down hugely. I mean, we, we, Tom and I are always saying this. We're, we're always just shopping now in secondhand bookshops um, and just finding, you know, old treasures. Uh, just to go back to one point you made about how, uh, how regressive this thing is. So my, so my own daughter is absolutely obsessed with trains, Thomas Tank Engine, building Brio railway tracks, which of course I love to bits. It's great fun. Um, but it, it never, it never would occur to me that, oh, you know, actually she must be, uh, there must be a boy trapped in her, you know, in a girl's body or anything. Uh, it's just completely ludicrous. She's just a girl who likes playing with a train set, and it, the same principle applies to fiction. Exactly, exactly, uh, and that, and I cannot believe how this very regressive ideology has taken such hold in supposedly progressive institutions and organizations and um, industries like children's publishing, supposedly progressive. Everything is based on stereotypes. I mean, you know, however much sympathy you have for genuine trans people, that dysphoria, that, um, that disconnect between mind and body is based on stereotypes. What does it feel like to be a woman? You, you don't know unless I don't know what it feels like to be a man. I've written male characters. I've tried to empathise and write first-person male characters. But that's that's a, a work of empathy, not a work of turning myself into a bloke. Um, I can't know what a man's like. So everything about trans is based on stereotypes. Inevitably, it simply is. And I do know that there are people who genuinely suffer. And they should have the same rights as everyone else, not more rights, the same rights as everyone else, um, and respect and everything. Absolutely grand. But it's based on stereotypes. And children, I mean, I was I was a absolutely insane tomboy. I, I just I wore my brother's clothes, I refused to wear a dress most of the time. I kicked up a stink when I was forced to wear a dress. Um I I played with my brother's toys, I had a toy gun, shock horror, I played with his soldiers, I read his commando comics and chucked away the bunties. I, I, I was an absolute tomboy and I thought it would be great to be a boy. Nobody ever told me that, um, oh that's fine, you can be a boy. We'll stick you in puberty blockers and, and stunt your brain development and give you fragile bones and eventually you can have surgery to get an absolutely appalling um, facsimile of a penis sewn onto your thigh. Nobody suggested that because it would have been insane. <laughs> and eventually, you know, I grew up, I went through puberty. It was horrible. Puberty is horrible for everyone. <laughs> Nobody likes going through puberty. It's an essential part of human development. Stop blocking it. You come to terms with your body. You come to terms with who you are and you grow and develop. It's, it's, 
This is it. And even now I'm accused of being a closet trans man because I've got my hair short. That's how based in stereotypes it is. I don't think you're a closet anything, Gillian. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> well said. Um, just just before we let you go, um, we, we, Tom and I have just been fighting over WhatsApp over who's going to get to ask you this question. Um, but 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 there's one there's one other theme that we just wanted to pick your brains about. So lots of the conversation has been about established authors keeping quiet or established authors speaking out and getting into a lot of trouble for it. But what do you do? Um, and I'm trying not to sound too bitter as I say this, what do you do if you're a young want-to-be writer in your 20s or 30s trying to break into the literary world and you are a gender-critical man or woman um, and you're approaching an agent who's got pronouns in their bio and you just know from the outset that basically you're stuffed because you don't have a diverse identity or because you're a straight white man writing a book about male characters or whatever. It just seems to me that... that there, are, there have always been so many gatekeepers in the literary world, but now there's also this ideological litmus test where the rules aren't written down, there's no right to appeal against a decision, um, and you have to pass this test and you don't know what the rules are. Honestly, and I mean, I, I, I say this as someone who was published earlier in my career by um, both smaller independent publishers and major publishers. Um, I, I wouldn't go near the major publishers it, yeah. unless you are happy for your voice to be stifled. I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with approaching someone that experience, suppose you're writing a character from an ethnicity that isn't yours. Yes, get someone to read it and, and say, oh, you've got this wrong, you've got that wrong. Um, so to a degree, I, yes, you get sensitivity readers who don't overstep the mark are a good thing if, if they work with the author, not work over the author, basically. But don't go to any of the major publishers. If you genuinely want your voice to be heard rather than to make, like, and by the way, making a lot of money is not a guarantee anyway, because like so many books are published and so many books disappear without trades. Um, so getting a major publisher isn't a guarantee that you're going to be famous. You're not going to be Rick Reardon or, you know, anything. Um, so if you are genuinely proud of your own voice, you want to be free to express empathy with characters who aren't like you. You want to be free to think yourself into those characters. You want to be free to um, um, investigate whatever issues you like. If you want your voice to be true, go with one of the more um, independent-minded um, small publishers. I mean, I genuinely would. So many of them, by the way, have done so well because they they're not censorious like the big publishers are. I mean, Swift Publishing, um, um, Iron Lightning, um, have both done extremely well out of publishing really good authors who couldn't find um, an outlet with major publishers. Um, go, to, go to the smaller independent publishers or um, self-publish. There's, there's, you know, with a decent company, um, who will you know self-publish? Get a proper cover design. Get 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 your book properly edited. But self-publish, I would, I would do either of those now um, and sooner. 
disposal and go to one of the big publishers because all they will do is stifle your voice. Um, and that's not what you want when you're starting out in your career because all it makes for is stunted writing. Bland. Bland, bland, bland yeah. stunted writing. Exactly. Thank you for some um, excellent and forthright advice, which I, I will be heeding personally, I think. So I've, as you may have, t- may have guessed from the tone of my question, I, I may be in that, that same situation. But I, I had a situation where I, I'd sent a submission and had a response saying, we do not feel it is something we could place successfully in the current publishing climate, because I'm a man and the story happened to be about two men. And you have to think, well, if they got back and said, look, the writing is terrible, the characterization is non-existent, the plot is boring... You just kind of have to accept it. Or if they come back and say, it's just not for me, you know, that's, that's, that's fair enough. But you yeah. do feel like you're just banging your head against a wall when the response yeah. is, pretty well, you're yeah. living at the wrong time. Yes, and the, the current publishing climate is a, a, a very um, um, significant way of putting it as well. It's not like, yeah. yeah, this doesn't suit the market. It's the publishing climate. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm just, I'm just hoping, you know, the whole kind of insanely woke craze will be like vampires and it'll be over in a few years but not the way it's going at the moment I think the publishing industry will be one of the last to fall they'll be like Japanese soldiers in the jungle they will be the last ones holding out when the whole world returns to sanity I fear so yeah well, we, we've been talking a lot about the rewriting of some of our best authors. Uh, we've spoken about Roald Dahl, and, and I, I, it's all a bit worrying and depressing when you, you go too far down that, that, that rabbit hole. Yes, um, exactly. You know, and scratch any author and you'll find something you don't like about them. I mean, I mean you know, some authors, artists, sculptors, whatever, some of them are horrible people, but, you know. Some of, some of the best geniuses in history were not nice people. I mean, Richard Wagner, we're for example. Nice you know, they're not, yeah, but you don't have to be a nice dead. person to be a genius. You know, but, I right. mean, that's a whole different yeah. conversation. <laughs> yes, um, but, and you also don't have to be kind. You know, this whole be kind yeah. thing. No, no, be truthful. As the the famous, brilliant Magdalene Byrne once said, "I'd rather be rude than a thing liar." Yeah. <laughs> It'll be kind, yeah. Gillian, you've given us so much to think about um, over the last, oh, I think it's about 50, 55 minutes or so. Oh, my goodness. I know, it's just it? whizzed by. It's whizzed by because <laughs> we've touched on so many really interesting uh, hot-button issues. And, uh, you know, your story has, has, has now lasted three years and you're still smiling, you're still, you know, you're still <laughs> full of energy and I'm, I'm, I'm full of admiration for that, for that resilience well, thank you so- and that perseverance. No, thank you so- um, okay. I appreciate that. And, but thank you to the Free Speech Union for for helping me and enabling me to to get through this. Absolutely. It's what, it's what we're here for, Gillian. And, and I just to mention again to our listeners, um, Crowd Justice, if you search for Gillian Phillip, you'll find the fundraiser. I think it says on the fundraiser there's sort of 14 days, 21 days to go, but I'm sure you'll uh, you'll be accepting donations um, uh, for as long as they're coming your way. <laughs> yeah, I know it's. I, I know. I know it, it's. It's a tough financial world at the moment. Yeah, and I know that. Yeah, all donations are very gratefully received. Very gratefully accepted. Yeah. So thank you to everyone who has yeah. donated already. It's, yeah, thank you. But thank you for speaking to us and uh, to our listeners. A reminder: go to freespeechunion.org. And you can sign up as a member 
and uh, we'd love to have you. And if you're an author, we have a Writers' Advisory Council, and Gillian actually sits on that Writers' Advisory Council. So uh, we are very much uh, honing in on, on writing and publishing. So do have a look at that. that. There's a page on that on our website as well. But thank you for listening. And Gillian, thank you for coming to speak to us today. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great.